America thought it could separate Assad from the Syrian army and get the Syrian army to cough up Assad. The trouble is the top 40 generals in the Syrian army are Alawites. They share the same religion as Assad. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Back in 2011, the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad brutally suppressed protests against his regime. Most Arab countries in the region cut ties with Assad during this crackdown, and many countries supported armed groups dedicated to the overthrow of the Syrian government. As the Syrian civil war devolved, it became something of a proxy war between Arab governments like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which sought to topple the regime, and Iran on the other side backing Assad. But now, in the spring of 2023, things look very different. Saudi Arabia and Iran are taking steps towards rapprochement, and Arab governments throughout the region are reopening embassies in Damascus and re-establishing diplomatic relations with Syria. In fact, when the Arab League meets in May, there is a decent chance that Syria may be readmitted after being expelled from the Arab League over 10 years ago. Joining me to explain what is driving this regional realignment is Joshua Landis director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma and the Mackey Chair. We kick off discussing how the outbreak of the Syrian civil war impacted regional diplomacy and why now we are seeing such profound changes in the geopolitics of the Middle East. This ongoing diplomatic realignment and shift in the Middle East is one of the key stories to follow throughout 2023. It's a big deal, and Joshua Landis does an excellent job of explaining what is driving these changes. Now here is my conversation with Joshua Landis, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Can you briefly explain how the Syria civil war impacted regional geopolitics? How did countries in the region align when Syria began to dissolve into civil war? Well, Syria is right smack dab 
in the middle of the Middle East. So it had a big effect on everybody. And the countries aligned largely by those that were pro-US and pro-Iran and Russia. That aligned along a Sunni-Shiite divide, along a religious lines. The Gulf countries, and particularly Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Turkey, lined up against Assad, hoping to overthrow him because he's an ally of Iran, a Shiite power. Assad himself is an Alawite, which is an offshoot of Shiism. And so that's the way things really lined up. In Iraq, which is led by Shiites now, was pro-Assad and Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon, a very powerful militia that grew up after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon and after the Iran revolution in 79, supported a Shiite militia backed by Iran, was instrumental in supporting Assad throughout the civil war. So the region really split in two, and it was Shiites versus Sunnis, and it was America and American-built coalition, which was called by Secretary of State Clinton the Friends of Syria, against Russia and Iran and resistance powers, China, so forth, that backed Assad. And that was basically the status quo for like 10 years after the Syria civil war erupted. Yet in recent weeks and months, that seems to be shifting pretty profoundly. Why is it are we seeing now countries that were previously dedicated to overthrowing the Assad regime are now taking steps to normalize relations with Syria? Well, they're taking steps because Assad has won. And really, that divide, we say it's a status quo for 10 years, but that's not quite true. During the first year of the uprising, Assad was very brutal trying to put down this Syrian uprising that was quite widespread and came on the back of the Arab Spring. The Syrian who were opposed to Assad were trying to jump on the back of the Arab Spring. But rather rapidly, America got squeamish about its support for Assad. Already in 2011, when it started, Obama came out and said that Assad needed to go. And that really put a lot of wind in the sails of the opposition. They began to arm. They had been arming already, but they began to double down, thinking that America would support them. And America did support them, not militarily at first, only later, but other powers, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, jumped in and financed the opposition, began to pour arms in. But America got squeamish because rather rapidly, you begin to see uh, important militias, some connected to al-Qaeda and later ISIS grow up. And so already by the end of 2012, Americans had some deep misgivings about the opposition and began to say, we don't want to destroy the Syrian army. Deputy director of the CIA at the time gave a long interview on CBS in 2013 saying that we don't want to destroy the Syrian army because the opposition is full of these extremists and they're likely to take Damascus. Therefore, what we want to do is continue to fund the opposition, weaken the Syrian army in the hopes that the Syrian army will come to America, come to us to negotiate, at which point we'll say, get rid of Assad. So we'll get rid of Assad 
but will preserve the Syrian army and then rebuild it so it can destroy al-Qaeda and other extremists. So that was America's plan by 2013, but it didn't include destroying the Syrian army. And America thought it could separate Assad from the Syrian army and get the Syrian army to cough up Assad. The trouble is the top 40 generals in the Syrian army are Alawites. They share the same religion as Assad, and they are facing Sunni opposition, and increasingly Sunni fundamentalist opposition. And had that Sunni fundamentalist opposition won, they were going to ethnically cleanse the Shiites and the Alawites. And the Christians feared that they would be swept out with them. And so many of the minorities joined with Assad and fought like the Dickens in order to stay in control. And it turned into a very bloody, horrible war, but it was divided along those sectarian ethnic lines. And America backed away from the opposition and didn't give them ground-to-air missiles, wouldn't allow them to destroy Assad's air force, which was Russian planes. And then when Russia decided to enter in in 2015 and support Assad, they didn't do anything to oppose Russia. And they could have. They could have given missiles that would shot all these Russian airplanes out of the sky, the way we've done in Ukraine. There is almost no Russian airplanes flying over Ukraine airspace because they'll get shot down. So America could have done all that. Had Syria produced a Zelensky, America could have taken down Assad in no time, but it didn't produce a Zelensky. It produced an ISIS and Al-Qaeda, along with many other well-minded Syrians and liberals, but they weren't fighting on the battlefield. And so Washington really gave up and that's what's influenced this decision on the part of many of the Arab states to re-engage today, because they feel like Assad has won. He's going to be sitting there in the heart of the Arab world, and he's going to be making trouble for us. So we have to negotiate with him. So today, for the reasons you just described, I mean, there's basically what, like three, generally speaking, de facto authorities in what used to be the full territory of Syria. Assad and the Syrian government controls most of it. Then in the north, you have the U.S.-backed Kurdish militias and then the Turkish-backed militias as well, controlling other parts. But you're saying this has basically been the status quo for a while. Yes. Regional powers have noted that there's nothing much going to move the status quo. We're going to have to deal with the region and Syria as it exists. And that means dealing with Assad. So what have been some of the key issues that, say, a government like Saudi Arabia, which is seemingly now leading this rapprochement, engaging with Syria on? And are you seeing any direct talks yet between the Saudis and the Syrian government? You're absolutely right. Syria is in three big chunks. In the northeast, there's an American chunk, which is about 30% of Syria and has most of its oil and gas, very vital resources. And in the northwest is Turkey with about 10%, maybe a little bit more. And Syria has the rest and has most of the population, the Syrian government. So it's in these three parts and it's extraordinarily poor. Syrians are suffering like mad. Most Syrians don't get more than about an hour of electricity a day. That means they can't have refrigerators and so forth. Even those that have generators can't buy enough oil and gas because the government is broke to move them. And so they really are in a terrible situation. The winter was just horrible because schools couldn't run. They couldn't heat the classrooms. It's a bad situation. And so 
the earthquake really was a catalyst for this because so many people were killed and it highlighted the terrible conditions. And I think Arab governments thought, you know, there was a humanitarian aspect to it, but there was also this, you know, this has been the way it is for now over three years, four years since the end of ISIS, really beginning of 2019, the battle lines have been drawn and it's been that way for five years. And they thought, Assad's going to live. He's in his mid-50s. He could be there for another 25 years. And we can't just not deal with the situation because as refugees, you know, the issues that you're talking about are big drug trade because Assad has no trade. So he's allowed, encouraged perhaps, we don't know, encouraged regime figures to make all of these amphetamines and so forth and to pump them out of Syria because he has nothing to lose. And he has everything to gain. Some people say it's worth $5 billion. We have no clue. So I saw a statistic that the amphetamine that you're referring to, Captagon, which is, I guess, very popular in the Middle East, I hadn't heard of it, that the Captagon trade in Syria is combined worth more than all other Syrian exports at this point, which seems to suggest, if, it, if that specific statistic is not true, nonetheless, it's like a huge money machine for Syria. And there's suggestions that the Assad regime is kind of controlling that trade. Yes, it's controlling it. The government budget for Syria this year is about $3.5 billion. That's 16 to 18 million Syrians inside the government controlled area. We're not sure how many are there because there hasn't been a census for a long time since the war. So it's a major moneymaker for the government and all the surrounding countries, particularly Jordan, but Saudi Arabia, which is a big destination for this drug, would like to stop it. There are refugees. Everybody's sort of groaning under the Syrian refugee population, Lebanon in particular, a million and plus, Jordan, a million plus, and Turkey with 4 million. So all those countries would like Syria to be able to reconstruct and develop an economy and have some kind of security so that people could go back home. As it is now, it's under crushing sanctions imposed by the international community, mostly by Europe and the United States, which mean that anybody who does business there can be sanctioned. And a, a recent bank, in fact, the bank that I work with, Wells Fargo, just had to pay a $100 million fine for allowing its software to be used in Europe by companies that were exporting and importing before 2015 to Syria. So it can be very onerous to companies if they get across that border is definitely not worth it for them to do any business. So Syria has is suffering and Syrian's economy is at a standstill. There are no jobs. There's a lot of banditry and corruption and the bad stuff happening. So I think countries like Saudi Arabia and Jordan has been particularly pushing this. The UAE has been pushing it very hard. Think, you know, nothing's going to change. Everybody's clucking their tongues at Assad, but Assad's not hurt by these sanctions. He's living in his palace. He's having a grand old time. But the Syrian people, these 16 million, are in a terrible shape. And, and they're mostly innocent people. So what are we really accomplishing by these sanctions? We're destroying the lives of 16 million people who are the future of Syria. Yeah, I mean, it seems that countries in the region, those most impacted by the refugee crisis and the drug trade emanating from Syria have deduced that engaging with Assad is the best way to 
pursue their own interests. Yet, of course, this runs afoul of U.S. policy. I'm wondering to what extent this emerging regional shift towards Assad can be linked to or is in some way related to the recent rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran brokered by China. Do you see a link between the two? I do. Certainly for Saudi Arabia, the link is very obvious. And there had been momentum gathering for this kind of a uh, bringing Syria out of the cold. But Saudi Arabia, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, has really come up with a plan of growth, liberalism, and opening the Saudi economy. He wants to really make Saudi Arabia a copy of what's happening in the United Arab Emirates, where a person that he looks up to, MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, has really developed an extraordinary economy that is booming. Tons of Russians who are now sanctioned in Russia are leaving Russia and going to settle in the UAE. Iraqis have gone there, Syrians have gone there, Palestinians before them. It's an open economy. You can move there and get what's called a golden visa for 10 years. The schools are great. There's English language schools from one end of the place to the other. So you can send your kids to these international schools, which are really very good. And the kids are becoming competitive in the world marketplace. And the country is booming. And I think Saudi Arabia looks at this, sees this is where we need to move if we're not going to just be a one-horse town and totally dependent on oil and gas which is going to run out someday. So he's trying to transform his country into this kind of a growth model. Whether he can do it or not, I don't know. But that's what his idea is. And so if there's a war between Iran and Israel, which is not unlikely, he doesn't want to be caught in the middle. And he doesn't want to get into another war where Saudi Arabia is compromised and it scares business away and will trash his model for the future of Saudi Arabia. So he wants to be out of that. And of course, with sanctions on Iran and no Iran nuclear deal, Israel is threatening to possibly bomb Iran. And even Biden has promised Israel that he will not let Iran make the bomb. So were Iran to push towards weaponizing this uranium that is purifying, what's going to happen? And it looks like there could be some kind of a strike on the Iranian nuclear facilities. And then Saudi Arabia would be dragged in if it were part of an alliance with the Saudi Arabia. So it's distanced itself. It's listened to China and it's allowed China to push Iran towards a reconciliation. And it's going for this reconciliation because it wants to reassure itself that if there's a war between Israel and Iran, Saudi Arabia is not going to be in the middle of it. And Iran in the past has threatened to close the Straits of Hormuz, which are right at the end of the Persian Gulf and which where much Saudi oil has to get out through its ships. So were Iran to have that kind of retaliation for an Israeli strike, Saudi Arabia would be stuck in the middle of this war. And in terms of Saudi Arabia's relationship with Syria and, and the Assad regime, it would seem that they just don't want to be, therefore, like on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war any longer. That, that's one potential opportunity of conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia that they could take off the table if Saudi Arabia normalizes relations with Assad. Yes, it's a danger, but also you want Syria to be a growth factor 
for the region so that there's not turmoil, instability, perhaps more fundamentalism coming out of Syria or further civil war. You want to fix that. You want to cauterize Syria. So at least it's not an open sore in the middle of the Middle East. Hopefully you turn it into some kind of growth thing where it can grow its way out of this and begin to employ people again and be transit trade for Saudi oil and gas, for regional transit and entrepot, which is what it was becoming before the civil war. So rather than have it be a black hole in the middle that's creating instability, you want to fix it uh, as much as you can. So it seems that one key inflection point coming in the next few weeks is a meeting of the Arab League in which it is a potential that the Arab League would vote to reinstall the Syrian government as a member of the Arab League, which it was kicked out of uh, at the start of the civil war. First, do you see that as, as a likely outcome? Well, that's on everybody's lips. Saudi Arabia is dangling this in front of Syria and Assad. The possibility of coming in May for the meeting of the Arab League and it possibly being readmitted to the Arab League. Qatar, however, has said that they're not going to reconcile with Assad under any circumstances. You need a unanimous vote to return Syria to the Arab League. So Qatar could stand in the way, but even so, Saudi Arabia is toying with the idea of inviting Syria anyway, perhaps as an honorary visiting, whatever. The point is, is that this is an inducement to Assad to start negotiating seriously and making some concessions to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has, has said that they want a political solution to the civil war, which means some kind of offering to the opposition for reconciliation. So there are a number of, of things on the, on the table. We don't know what's going on. We know that Syrian intelligence has been going to Saudi Arabia. Saudis have been going to Syria. There have been a back and forth of visits. And this is true for the UAE, where Assad went to the UAE just a few weeks ago. And so the negotiations are going on. And Assad is also talking to the Turks with the Russians and the Iranians involved. So he's talking on a number of fronts. And the Arabs are trying to come up with a group ask, a common agenda that they can present to Assad in order to raise their leverage. And that's why I said, you know, America should join with Saudi Arabia. It should be sitting at the table. Instead of sitting on the sidelines and just clucking its tongue at the Saudis, get in there and try to shape the ask and try to uh, achieve some American interests because America can't stay in Syria forever. I did want to ask you, what has been the U.S. response thus far to this growing regional trend towards normalization? I mean, you have at least three key U.S. allies, Jordan, UAE, and Saudi Arabia, all very seemingly proactively wanting to normalize relations with the Assad regime. How has the U.S. responded? And also, it seems that this rapprochement, if it exists, is happening in the context of increased hostilities in Syria, in which I think we're speaking today, there was another bomb lobbed from somewhere at a U.S. base in, in northwest Syria. You know, I think America is a little bit divided on this. They're trying not to get out too far ahead. The Undersecretary of State, Barbara Leaf, a few weeks ago said, well, if the Arab countries are going to negotiate with Assad, 
they better ask for some good stuff, you know, get something for it. That's what, exactly what she said. Others in the U.S. government have said, we're not going to do this. We don't approve of it. And we don't approve of our Arab allies negotiating with him either. There have been congressional meetings. There's going to be a congressional hearing, I think, next week on Assad's crimes, which are and some very rather right-wing people are going to speak at it. So it's being put together, I presume, by people who are trying to block any kind of American softness on this and to put forward a congressional statement. So, you know, I think that the Biden administration is at sixes and sevens about this. They don't know quite how to deal with Saudi Arabia since it's demarche with China and Iran. They don't want to be anti-peace. They do want to be anti-Assad. But I think there are many people in the administration who realize that sanctions aren't working and they're not good. They're not good for America, perhaps, and they're not good for Syrians because they just paint us into a corner as the bad guys who are hurting people. And now we try to refocus that and say, no, this is punishing Assad, punishing Assad. Trouble is, Assad is very wealthy and he can survive this. He can let his people starve. And that's that's the problem. So in the coming weeks, we'll have, of course, that Arab League meeting, which will be a kind of key moment in which we'll see the extent to which other Arab governments are willing to kind of bring Assad back from the cold. Are there other key trends or inflection points or meetings or, or moments that you'll be looking towards in the coming weeks and months that will suggest to you what this trajectory towards normalization looks like? Yes. In several weeks, there's going to be elections in Turkey. Simultaneously, there's this Turkish-Syrian dialogue. Erdogan has said he was willing to meet with Assad. He wants to reconcile but he has some very big asks as well. And he owns 10% of Syrian territory, which he's not about to leave anytime soon. But Syria and Turkey have a lot to discuss because they have a, a common enemy in the United States, which is neither country wants the US in this zone because the US is arming the Kurds and encouraging Kurdish nationalism, if you will, and separatism. And neither of them want to see an independent or autonomous Kurdish state in between Syria and Turkey. So they have this Kurdish problem that they both share and they want the Americans out and they worried about terrorism. They have defined this a little bit differently from each other and they're worried about refugees. So those are the three topics and elections are going to be key because Kilic Darolu, the opponent to Erdogan, has said Erdogan made a big mistake getting to the Syrian war, that he would withdraw from Syria and he would try to patch up relations with Assad. So I'm sure Assad is going back every night to sleep saying, I hope he wins, I hope he wins. But even so, he's just had a meeting in Moscow with Erdogan. It didn't go very well. The two sides are trying to play nice, but before the elections, uh, Erdogan wants to show that he's trying to fix this refugee problem, which is weighing on Turkey. But that's going to be key, who wins that election. Because if we see momentum after the elections towards some reconciliation with Syria, it's going to encourage the Saudis and other Gulf Arabs to jump on board and to move forward. That will cause the United States to become ever more isolated. If these various talks with Iran over Yemen, which is like Syria, where Saudi Arabia and Iran are talking about a truce in Yemen, and there's a Turkish 
growing understanding with Assad, then things are going to move forward and the United States will be the odd man out, sort of holding on to a, a policy which everybody else has abandoned. Is there anything else you want to mention or like a point you think deserves emphasis that you didn't make? You know, I, I do. I would make one more point, which is America's position today in Syria is tied up with trying to punish Iran and to try to push Iran out of Syria. And that means in large part, encouraging ends a debt to the Kurds who helped us destroy ISIS. And Americans owe a debt to the Kurds. There's no doubt about it. The problem with America's position in Syria, we only have a thousand troops, but there's a lot of other contractors, a number of whom, one was killed and others were wounded the other day in one of these attacks on American base. But our debt to the Kurds doesn't include creating a, a separate Kurdish state. We can't do it. There are only 2 million Kurds in Syria. They're fairly poor. They're totally dependent on the United States for money, for protection, and particularly for our air force, which has a no-fly zone over this 30% of Syria. But we can't do that forever. And as America becomes more isolated there, it's going to be a sitting duck because Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and particularly the Syrian forces are going to try to kill Americans and drive them out. And we're already seeing that happening almost every week. There's a rocket that goes towards an American base. America retaliates and kills a bunch of Syrians. But the whole region is trying to drive up the price on the Americans for their continued position there. And we cannot create a Kurdish state. It's illegal to do so. The international community will not accept it. The international community looks at Assad as the rightful owner of Syria, as the government. So America's in a losing position there. And we're going to withdraw at some time. President Biden has promised he would not do it. And he's already done Afghanistan and he got a black eye for doing that. So he doesn't want to do it again. But the next administration or the administration after that will do it. And better to prepare the Kurds for a withdrawal with a transition. There's a deal to make between Assad and the Kurds. They both depend on each other and they've depended on each other in the past and they can patch up their differences. It will be painful, but it's possible. And so that's what I would add to this conversation is that there are Americans who say we can just stay there indefinitely because it's not very expensive for us to stay there. But what does that mean? Indefinitely for what? To create an independent state for the Kurds? No, we're not going to do it. We're going to withdraw from Syria, and the Kurds are going to be let down with a thump if we don't prepare for it and help them come to terms, negotiate with the Saudis and the others, because we have maximum leverage right now. As soon as others have made their deal with Assad, we're going to be all alone, and we're going to be much weaker for it. Joshua, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Well, it's a pleasure. It's very nice to talk with you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb 
If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.